0: Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 38, The World of Batman v. Superman. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question.
1: Start asking questions. Do they the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and who are excited by the Justice League universe. We're going to answer the questions raised by the JLU as we eagerly anticipate each and every DC film. This episode, we touch on topics from the Empire Magazine article and explore the world of Batman v Superman, courtesy of Dr. Pepper. This podcast dives deep into the Justice League universe to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that make up the Justice League universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Can you believe it? We're about a month and a half away, and we just keep getting more. I don't need to see anything else. I'm ready to see this movie. But one of the ways I like to stoke my anticipation is to take a break from the relentless refreshing, the searching and the scouring for every new scrap, and just take a step back. Take a long, deep breath. And just appreciate the moment. <sighs> Let go of the fear of missing out and revel in what you already know. <laughs> At least that's what I told myself these past two weeks while on business trips, which meant being stuck with spotty internet the whole time, so no refresh button for me. <laughs> So instead, I contented myself by revisiting Zack Snyder's filmography and poring over the March issue of Empire. With the incredible restraint and stylistic choices and the seriously grounded storytelling of Man of Steel, it tended to seem like a different sort of film not terribly tied to his past. But in seeing where Batman v Superman is going and in reviewing his past films, Man of Steel fits into place like the satisfying completion of a jigsaw puzzle. We'll save those ideas for another show, but I encourage you to do your own mini-marathon to appreciate Zack's journey and approach, and I think you'll pick out some reoccurring themes, questions, and ideas among intense visuals, epic action, and gorgeous cinematography. Between rewatching all those films and some of his recent interviews, my confidence in DC films and the Justice League universe has shot up from my already optimistic outlook. We're fortunate that Zack Snyder seems especially suited to bring this universe to life. But that's all another show, his filmography is fertile ground for discussion and analysis in the future, but right now we're in that pre-release anticipation mode. Okay, I'm rambling, let's get to today's topics, but before we begin, let me bounce an idea off you, just to give us a little more mileage in our musings. Food for thought to focus the lens of our analysis beyond just recitation and reaction to the Empire article and the Dr. Pepper comic. The following is a rubric for evaluating carefully crafted choices in fiction. If you view entertainment as escapism or fantasy, part of what makes that possible is engagement. Creators should strive to present engaging in-story decision-making to foster more empathy, involvement, and to draw the audience in. The audience will put themselves into the work and deeper into the simulation or the world of the story. So what makes for engaging choices? Four factors help you escape. ESCP, Exchange, Stakes, Context, and Preference. Now each factor is a guideline for making an in-story choice interesting, compelling, or engaging. First, there should be an exchange. There has to be pros and cons, costs and benefits, a rich matrix of pluses and minuses to the choice. If the choice is without costs or consequences, and it's just purely good, then the choice isn't interesting, it's just obvious. Second, there should be stakes. Whatever the choice, the pros and cons, the benefits planned, or the unintended consequences wrought, they have to stick around. They have to persist, and they have to matter to make those choices interesting. Life and death decisions mean less if no one stays dead. Third, those choices should be contextual. In other words, the facts of the situation or the circumstances should affect the decision. It shouldn't be a choice that would be made the same way in every circumstance, in a vacuum or not. For example, you may typically choose not to resort to violence, but what context, set of facts, circumstances, or situation would cause you to choose otherwise? That's a compelling choice that engages the audience with the situation, to be engrossed in the facts. Of the story or the reality because of how it impacts the decision making. Fourth and finally, the most interesting choices have an aspect of preference. There should be some space for the subjective, for opinion or personal preference, irrespective of all of the above. As we say at the beginning of every episode, reasonable minds may differ, meaning that even after reasoning through the exchange, the stakes, and the context, two people may still differ on the choice in the end. Choices with these traits illustrate and inform the characters, they flesh out their personalities, and it increases audience engagement. So you can probably see a ton of ways that these factors express themselves through the choices in Man of Steel and Snyder's filmography. Exchanging safety for a dream in Dawn of the Dead, exchanging your life for honor in 300, exchanging truth for peace in Watchmen, exchanging reality for freedom in Sucker Punch. Or if we consider the context factor, the context of Cold War anxieties and and Nixon-era corruption, the context of claiming power when you have none, the context of 9-11 anxieties, and post-patriot act ambivalence, the preference of two brothers reacting differently to enslavement, the preference of compromising truth for peace, and so on. And stakes? Well, every Snyder film has a bittersweet ending because the stakes persist. To the very end, the characters must live with the consequences even as the credits roll. We could do an exhaustive analysis of this four-factor rubric, but we won't. That's not this show, but I just want you to keep these ideas in mind. So, let's get to the Empire article. I probably can't encourage you to pick up that March issue of Empire enough. Over 25 pages dedicated to Batman v Superman, 9 Batman-focused, 4 Wonder Woman, 8 Superman, with insets for Alfred, Lex, Lois, and Doomsday. To fast attack this, I'm going to try to confine myself to direct quotes as much as possible, but obviously, I have got to make an exception for the most talked about image out of that issue. The picture of a rifle-toting nightmare Batman overlooking a ruined cityscape with three alien punctuations. The erupting columns of smoke and fire stretching infinitely into the sky. Distant vehicles or structures larger than several city blocks. And in the midground, a giant unmistakable omega symbol. This clearly heralds the coming of Darkseid and a larger universe which contains cosmic entities like the new gods.
1: Only the slimmest of chances has allowed me to overcome my death. At the hands of Superman. But let the universe howl in despair, for I have returned. What is your will, my lord? As ever, to search for the anti-life equation, that I may bring order to this aimless universe. But first, Superman must suffer for killing me. His adopted world will die screaming. Only then will I seek the ultimate end. I hope you appreciate, kal that everything that happens from this point is on your head. The skies will rain fire, the oceans will boil, the streets will run red with the blood of billions. Only then, after your last pitiful hope is extinguished, will I end your life. Let's go.
0: Now, a petty part of me is irked every time Darkseid is described as Thanos-like or DC's Thanos, yet that's probably a fair description to the general audience, who may be more familiar with Marvel's cosmic characters right now. But I can't help but point out the fact that Darkseid came first, and directly inspired the creation of Thanos. Darkseid was created in 1970 by the legendary Jack Kirby. Marvel's Thanos would come three years later. Jim Starlin greatly admired Kirby and was keeping tabs on his work when he created Thanos. As he explained in an interview published in the 1998 issue of Comic Book Artist Magazine, Starlin was basically inspired by the new gods and he created Thanos to resemble Metron. Roy Thomas saw the concept and immediately recognized the source. He encouraged Starlin to beef up the character to imitate Darkseid instead and thus Thanos as we know him today came to be. Obviously both characters have taken on lives of their own since then. But never forget, at the inception, the similarity was intentional and not accidental. So, what does Dark Side mean for the Justice League universe? Plenty of time to speculate on that in the future. But I will again marvel at the marketing and the strategic release of information. The idea of apocalypse on Earth is a revelation that we weren't ready for until marketing brought us to this point. I went over all of that thoroughly last episode, not gonna get into it again. Let's move on. Starting with with Batman, let's just touch on three topics: humor, point of view, and Batman as the bad guy. For humor, we have Affleck on Alfred saying, quote, there is a lot of wit. Batman is such a serious guy. Bruce Wayne is such a serious guy. It's nice to have a foil because we are going for this more realistic tone. We have to avoid being glib, but that wry British sense of humor is in a lot of ways about taking the piss. End quote. And that helps us dial in the tone. We know that both sides of the bat are going to be serious and go for that heavier tone, but at the same time, we know that Alfred is going to bite back, which is both a source of humor and characterization. A bit of irreverence and incredulity from Alfred towards the entire Enterprise has always been my favorite take on the character. Especially with so many drawn into the orbit of Batman's crusade, to the point that it can nearly become normalized, it's nice to have that wry British wit to remind us of how extraordinary it all is.
2: Late night playing cards, Master Bruce. Something like that. How did you know? I believe tradition calls for hiding these up one's sleeves. Was that sarcasm, Alfred? Mild teasing at best. i am being uncharacteristically gentle with you. Mainly because you're bleeding all over my nice clean floor. Not going to let me go to work. That is correct, Master Bruce. Not until you've had proper medical attention. Fine. Food, and a minimum of eight hours bed rest. Let's just get this over with. I made chicken soup. You can eat while you brood, and I'll put in your stitches myself. It will be delightful, I'm sure. All right. By the way, the part about the stitches, that would be sarcasm.
0: Okay, on to Batman's point of view, which Snyder tells us is very much the core of the film. He says, quote, in a lot of ways, Batman v Superman is a very personal concept. It's just two people trying to understand the other's point of view, end quote. And I'm thrilled to hear that because that means we're really getting at the core motivations and characterizations. We're dealing with psychology and the decision making. Despite all the fantastical elements, there is still human drama at the center. And to me, that means we're not dealing with bizarro or mind control or other things that cheapen their choices. And as discussed in our rubric, this difference in opinion is an expression of personal preference, something which makes their choices engaging. A part that I just sort of glossed over is the fact that it isn't just two points of view, but Snyder says it's two people trying to understand the other's viewpoint. And that effort at understanding means that this isn't going to be just a pointless, dumb fight. The fight comes when that effort breaks down. As Affleck says later in the issue, quote, rather than just aliens versus predator, where you have two monsters and they're going to fight here, you have two people who really truly believe that they are doing something heroic and necessary in their conflict. End quote. Speaking about that necessity from Batman's perspective, Affleck. Affleck says, quote, what you didn't see at the end of the movie was the effect that it had on the whole world. It's an acknowledgement that with violence and destruction, there is real human cost. What do you do with that? If there is a 1% chance that Superman is going to cause death in his being here, it has to be treated like an absolute certainty. End quote. Affleck internalized the line and the reasoning expressed by his character in the latest Batman-focused TV spot, which was performed with intensity and credibility. Here again, our rubric is tripped, raising the consequences and their persistence into this world and its effect on their attitudes. Batman's position arises because the stakes are so high, and Batman v Superman is engaging because Man of Steel established those stakes already. Of course, we get a difference in opinion from Superman. Cavill chimes in, saying, quote, The idea of justice at any cost is not something that he thinks is okay, but he wants to solve the problem in the cleanest way possible. End quote. So each character is challenging the essential existence of the other, which should make for interesting characterization and storytelling. We're very much going to get into what makes both of them tick, how those things are at odds, but also how they can be reconciled. So we talked about the humor and the points of view, and I just want to quickly point out that the article frames Batman as the bad guy in this film. Even Affleck agrees, saying, quote, it's quite natural that he be the one to cross the line. After all, he's the bad guy, end quote. And I don't want people to take that for granted. No question, Batman is a hero, the world's Finest, part of the Trinity, and a founding League member. However, here, in this context and in this film, he's the antagonist, almost one of the villains. As they say, he's the bad guy. And this is a brilliant way in for the general audience and Bat fans alike, because it plays to Batman's strengths and has a lot of narrative advantages. Compared to Superman, Batman has always been the one to cross the line, resorting to darker and more sinister methods to reach nobler ends. It is at the same time, his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. The strength of his unique insight is obvious. He anticipates and is ready for things that happier minds would never dare contemplate.
1: Before we vote, I think
2: the accused should be allowed a few words in his defense. Seconded. Okay, Batman. My actions don't require any defense. In the same situation, I do it again. Oh, come on. As individuals, and even more so as a group, the Justice League is far too dangerous to lack a failsafe against any possible misuse of our power.
3: We use our power to protect the world. We always have.
2: And what if we ever used it for some other purpose? If you people can't see the potential danger of an out-of-control Justice League, I don't need to wait for a vote. I don't belong here.
0: However, it is also his weakness. His paranoia and his cynicism drive him to indulge in preparations which are offensive to normal, trustworthy relationships. Who plots to defeat their dearest? Whereas the normal reaction to closer bonds is greater trust and reliance, Batman takes that intimacy and wields it as a weapon. And while this behavior would be repulsive in anyone else, loved ones plotting the downfall of another, husbands with contingencies against their wives mothers cataloging weak points and vulnerabilities in their children for future use best friends anticipating betrayal in batman it's Celebrated because it aligns with his characterization. He's a person shaped by a horrible thing, doing a crazy thing to prevent more horrible things. And that perpetuates through his plans, protocols, preparedness, and proteges. From the moment he drew some highly situational something from his utility belt, he'd always be seen as pathologically prepared. No one sane carries shark repellent while patrolling the rooftops of Gotham, but we forgive and celebrate Batman for it because we know that he's broken and it all comes from his single, life-shattering, unprepared moment. How different would it all be if he knew then how to fight or be fearless? Or if he had had a utility belt to stop that one tragic moment? So we've been prepared to accept and forgive a Batman who crosses the line. To even extol it as a virtue in him. Because what else does he have? What do you want? You made contingency plans to stop
2: everybody in the League just in case any one of us ever went bad. My contingencies were intended to immobilize, not kill. Was that it? With all that talk about unchecked power, you're still so arrogant you didn't bother to come up with a plan to stop yourself. I do have a plan. It's called the Justice League. Just wanted to be sure. What is it? If the League ever did go over to the wrong side, I want there to be somebody I can trust to keep the planet safe even from me.
0: Batman as a villain has narrative advantages, in that he's allowed to push the edges more than a conventional hero can. He's allowed his frailties, his brokenness, his imperfection and his failures, and correspondingly, he's allowed his anger, his complexity, and he doesn't have to hold back. Batman being in the wrong lets him be among the villains that we love the most, Loki, Magneto, or Bucky, except with a legitimate return to heroics, rather than the trend of taking villains that we love so much and defanging them to make them more tepid anti-heroes. Batman being a hero cast as a villain, but reforming by the end, gives the audience the satisfaction of that trend in a more authentic and honest fashion. And here, even if the villain steals the show, well, it's Batman. We want him to do that. Further, Superman doesn't lose out because of how much the duality of these two characters is emphasized. Now usually, in a Batman film, Batman's villains are some facet of his psyche or persona, so when they steal the show, it's impoverishing him by comparison. A smaller piece of him amplified is more interesting than the Batman himself. However, with Batman as the other side of Superman's coin, every exploration, amplification, or revelation is likewise saying something about his counterpart, and they they are- both enriched accordingly. In fact, there's room here for you to wholeheartedly embrace Batman as the hero of the film and Superman as the villain. In which case, you can just swap everything that I've already said because of the duality of these characters. I won't walk you through how Superman's idealism and hope are his strength and his weakness, but you get the idea. You can plausibly cast Superman as the villain of this conflict from a different perspective, as Affleck says later in the issue. Quote, so it's a about two heroes who can be seen as heroic and villainous. And when you look at the double-edged sword of that, different people will come away looking at it very differently. End quote. Okay, enough about the Batman, let's look at the Luther insert. Eisenberg gives us three telling quotes, and let's just quickly break these down. The first quote, he uses wordplay and very clever allusions to other stories and other myths, but it never compromises what is scary about him. He is the guy that won't sleep To get something done. End quote. So I'm thrilled that we're going to get to explore and analyze those illusions and myths down the road. That's exactly the kind of stuff that I love to research and think about. He also confirms that Luther is scary, obsessive, and driven. Okay, the next quote: what I think makes the story relevant is this questioning of the value of this kind of power in the real world. So my character, who has what we would think of as modern financial success, is threatened by this guy who has power in a supernatural way Superman is an existential threat to my character end quote
2: you coming Kent it sickens me that insipid boyish grin the smug self-regard tell the truth doesn't his very existence diminish you diminish us all can you imagine a better world Kent Mm, that's all I've ever asked in a world without Superman The unattainable Lois Lane might have noticed good old Clark pining away in the corner. But with him around, you're a parody of a man. A dullard. A cripple. Next to Superman, even Lex Luthor's greatness is overshadowed. Are you trying to intimidate me? I'm trying to educate you. We all fall short of his sickening, inhuman perfection. Feel that, Kent. Real muscle. Not the gift of alien biochemistry, the product of hard work
0: spot on. We have some philosophical questions about power and success. I recently watched a video that was a philosophical fruit salad on humanity's historical attitudes towards failure and success, which had a ton of ideas applicable to Snyder's filmography, but it is fodder for so many tangents that there's no hope of getting through that without being utterly derailed, so I think I'll pop that at the end of the podcast for you to reflect upon on your own. Let's get to that last quote. You learn pretty on that Lex is interested in metahuman existence, and that there might be some relationship between that investigation and the appearance of Diana Prince." There are so many ways that this can play out and manifest itself, but the most exciting part is how this ties everything together. Everything is woven together meaningfully, which vitiates fears of this film being overstuffed. Things feel overstuffed when the elements aren't clearly integral or developed, when they feel like they're expendable add-ons or paid short shrift. Yet this quote suggests, that Lex and Wonder Woman are fully integrated into the plot, which is exactly what Snyder says in the Wonder Woman section. He said, quote, it was incredibly organic how Wonder Woman came into the story. The whole concept of, let's not try to save anything, let's try it all. Then, Wonder Woman's entrance made us realize that we were much closer to the Justice League than we thought. We realized we were one movie away. End quote. This is all very intentionally and organically building towards an intuitive Justice League. I want to talk about her age, her powers, and her history, but let's save that for the future. I do want to comment on this quote. In describing Wonder Woman, Gadot says, quote, I don't want people to think that she's perfect. She can be naughty, end quote. And I think that left some people scratching their heads, but I think that's exactly right. Wonder Woman has always been, for lack of a better word, naughty. The Princess Diana honors the Queen Hippolyta and shows deference to the gods. She's the model Amazonian. And yet, she's disobedient, and she behaves badly when the story of Wonder Woman starts. Whether it's the rules about men, or being the champion, or getting involved in man's world, at every turn she's told how to behave, and then does something different, while still honoring the underlying precepts of her people, her gods, and her values. And that's why rebellious doesn't seem quite right, but naughty does. She's not this fallen angel, but a reasonable mind differing. It's a kind-hearted and loving disobedience. She's naughty. She continues to break all the rules when entering the world of men, but it's always with diplomacy and the welfare of all in mind. So again, it's not exactly defiance or mischief. She's not a revolutionary or a heretic. It's just just one word, but to me, it's telling that they got the temperature of her character just right. And there's even a little hint of playfulness, which is reinforced by what Snyder says. Quote, Looking back and doing an origin story, and it is a period piece, we see the role of women throughout history. There is a great source of humor in that now. It is so unbelievable, you can't even fathom it. You are still making a statement, but having some fun with it. End quote. So they're absolutely going to juxtapose the expectations from 100 years ago. With our modern sensibilities for a bit of fun while being no less meaningful. That sounds pitch perfect to me.
1: Is it true, Artemis? A man on the island? Go home, princess. That is an order. I'll take it under advisement. This is not fair, Mother. I will always lack necessary experience unless given the opportunity.
2: Diana, you may resent my decisions, but there are evils in this world that I, as a mother, am compelled to protect you against.
3: I am a woman now. I no longer need your protection. We should not have let her go. I don't see how we could have stopped her.
2: I could have shot her in the leg. Not near an artery, of course. You are the soul of thoughtfulness, Artemis.
0: Okay, our final Empire section covers Superman, Lois, and Doomsday, and I think I'm going to really just run through this quickly because I think the Dr. Pepper comics are Superman heavy and that's going to balance them out. In fact, I think I'm going to skip my Doomsday notes entirely and once again pick up this issue, especially if you enjoy deep analysis. Consider what all this material will mean when viewed retrospectively after seeing the film. As we've discussed on this show before, rarely do filmmakers or actors provide interpretation for their work after it's been released. However, leading up to it, they tend to discuss it a little more freely because they don't want to give away the substance or spoilers. So ironically, we're getting more insight into the interpretation of the film before seeing it than we'll probably ever get directly from the source after seeing it. Pick up this issue while you still can, folks. Okay, on to Superman. Cavill covers a lot of expository points. He says, quote, we see the reaction of Lex Luthor and the reaction of Batman and the reaction of the whole world to this godlike being. Superman has come to face a Senate committee chaired by Senator Finch to try and convince them he is not a threat to national security. People have begun to fear him. Is he too powerful? Is he, in fact, a tyrant? He is more used to this gig, doing his best to save as many lives as he can. He's no longer frantic. He's no longer a wet-behind-the-ears kind of superhero." End quote. So a lot of information, a lot of ideas which fall into our engagement room rubric. Two takeaways. First, the topic of the hearing is laid out. And second, Superman has settled into his heroics. Snyder rhetorically asks, can we really assume that Superman will never turn on us? And I think that gets covered in the Dr. Pepper comics, so let's discuss it then. Cavill concludes that he's not going to be a bumbling comedic Clark, but that, quote, he's being himself, only he's presenting a different front while he's in these different outfits, end quote. Which is the sort of credible take from the comics that I've been waiting and dying to see in the movies. Cavill sums it up, quote, There are hero moments where it looks like a hero moment. It doesn't look like a bum saving a bunch of people and then disappearing into the shadows. We're introducing a potential long-term villain, Lex Luthor. We're introducing Batman. And we're introducing Wonder Woman. This is the dawn of justice. End quote. Lots of great Lois stuff, but maybe we'll work that into the Dr. Pepper comics. Let's move on to those. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, Dr. Pepper has a promotional five-chapter digital comic book available through scanning cans or bottles of Dr. Pepper in the Blipper app. That's B-L-I-P-P-A-R. No proof of purchase is necessary for this promotion, and the app merely tracks engagement, so if you want to see these kinds of things in the future, make sure to give it a try. There is a $5 Fandango credit with the right proofs of purchase, so all the better if you enjoy Dr. Pepper. I will say that the print on the cans isn't as sharp or as colorful as it looks on the promo materials but it's still cool to have those cans covered in DC logos. Lois gets the Daily Planet, and Lex gets the LexCorp X logo. So if you haven't read the comic, just pause the podcast, go off and do that now, and then come back. Okay, so now that you've gotten read the comics, let's go over the credits, the canonicity, and the content. Now, interestingly, this comic isn't clearly titled, if at all. Each chapter is clearly numbered, and it clearly features a main character, but in tiny lettering on each cover, it says, from the world of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, and then featuring the main character of the chapter. So I guess that's as good a title as any from the world of Batman v Superman. The credits are the same throughout, except for the final Lex chapter where they are conspicuously missing. It's written by Christos Gage, penciled by Joe Bennett, inked by Sean Parsons, colored by Hi-Fi, and lettered by Darren Bennett. The editing staff are from DC's Digital First Division, so a few things to note with respect to the relative canonicity of these compared to other materials. With the Man of Steel prequel comic, it was literally titled Man of Steel Prequel, and it was exclusively available through Walmart, who was a major marketing partner. Millions of dollars in advanced ticket sales, an exclusive movie guidebook, a movie specific app, and more. In the prequel comic, the credits page lists Story by David Goyer, Jeff Johns, and Zack Snyder. So that was clearly officially licensed and produced. Produced with direct input from the filmmakers. By comparison, the Dr. Pepper comics are great, but they're not exclusive. We know that General Mills has a prequel comic campaign as well, and we also know that there's going to be a junior tie-in prequel novel covering much the same storytelling territory. The story isn't directly credited to the filmmakers, and the title suggests that the contents come from or are inspired by and intended to be consistent with the world of Batman v Superman. But do not necessarily dictate the world of Batman v Superman. All of which is to say that, yes, these are officially authorized materials, but don't fret if there are contradictions or conditions created by these comics. No filmmaker is going to lose sleep if they have to do something which forces the comic to give way. Essentially, these comics are the rough equivalent of the Star Wars Expanded Universe. They're officially authorized, required to be completely consistent and inspired by the film source material but with less influence on dictating the actual parameters of the world. For our analysis, we're going to take the comics completely at face value, but just keep that caveat in mind that they're not gospel. I'm not going to stress out trying to reconcile Batman having blue eyes, or Lex Luthor having green eyes in the comics, while Affleck has brown eyes and Eisenberg has blue eyes. (laughs) We don't need hyper time because I don't hold these comics to the same level of canon. Nevertheless, they are a wonderful insight into what Christos Gage might have had access to or might have had to have approved in order to tell these stories. And on that justification alone, we should pour through these and just accept them at face value as a window into the world of Batman v Superman. All right, let's start with some overall impressions. Overall, I really enjoyed it. The chapters are saturated with nods to Man of Steel and by extension, Superman. Lex Luthor is omnipresent, watching, waiting, plotting, even in the Senator Finch chapter, but we'll get to that. This is Superman's world and his impact upon it. Every chapter explores this on some level, and plenty of interesting ideas are raised. I'm not planning to walk you through everything that happens in every chapter. The app and the comics are free, so I expect you have read this already. We're just going to point out and comment on some of the things that this comic brings to light. Our first chapter is Batman, and we're confronted with a heavily stylized Firefly, the Batman arsonist villain. The costume might be too much in Just Man of Steel, but it fits alongside character like Deadshot and Slipknot. So right up front, the boundaries are being pushed to get us to a more comic book-like world. Batman is freely discussed, so his existence is certain, although the specifics may be a little mired in myth. Everyone agrees that he's real, but some think that there's an army of bats. Batman's change from someone who just stops and captures criminals to someone who permanently hobbles a burglar is related and speculated as an effect of the quote, Metropolis situation. As Sal says, you prepare yourself, you think you can handle anything, then some aliens drop out of the sky and level a city with their bare hands. What does that do to a man like him? So the characters are directly engaging our rubric by asking how does that context change his choices? (laughs) Okay, obviously I'm irked by the misrepresentation of Metropolis being leveled with bare hands, but that narrative exists in the real world irrespective of what was objectively on film and on the screen. So why wouldn't people in the story world have that view as well? I don't have to agree with or like that position to find it an authentic, authentic one that people can have. So in a weird way, the inaccuracy is an accurate and authentic touch. Anyways, near as I can tell, there's no talk of retirement or receding. It appears Batman has always been active and wasn't drawn out of retirement by the Black Zero event. Note, too, that the branding of criminals is probably more benevolent than never being able to walk normally again. So, the intensity and the aggression is squarely attributed to Batman as well. Now, everything is hearsay from a criminal, but it doesn't seem to be a frame-up either. I mean, even after the criminals essentially surrender, Bats apparently roughs them up anyways. And a note about that comment the cops casually comment on Batman even as they watch him swing away. And that little piece of information syncs up with Superman's comment next time they shine your light into the sky. Well, who's the they in Superman's line? Classically, traditionally, it's the Gotham PD. And that spotlight represents an acknowledgement of Batman's existence, a toleration of his tactics, and a need for his help. It is an aspect of Legitimacy, At least in Gotham, to the cops in the comic, Batman is not a public enemy, but a fellow protector. Now, as Batman operates outside the law and without respect for civil liberties, what does that say about the state of Gotham and its police? Going back to the fight, as we discussed before, Batman is known for his preparedness. It's raised even by the criminal in this chapter, and it's a plot point in the fight. The Batman has a respirator and a flame-proof cape, which allows him to dispatch Firefly easily. Finally, the chapter ends with Batman being observed by Lex, and again, that vitiates the idea that Batman is this uncertain myth. Of course, he could and would get caught on camera at some point. Okay, on to Lois. Uh, This, to me, is the most over-the-top chapter, but there's still some good takeaways. Obviously, Lois is as driven as ever. As Adam says in her Empire interview, quote, she may have some tunnel vision, but she's got a job and moral standards, end quote, and she can still single-handedly bring a CEO to his knees, figuratively and literally. I'm a little wary of how manipulative she was capable of being, since that's one of her themes in the film. Again, from that Empire article, Adam says, quote, how corporations can use the media and how different people can use media to spin perception, end quote. But the biggest takeaway is that Kryptonian technology is out in the wild, and the black market sale of three pieces of technology and the extracted data is enough to reverse the fortunes of a corporation with a collapsed headquarters. So we know that Kryptonian technology is heavily regulated and explicitly illegal. And this may go a ways towards explaining why Superman isn't attempting to wrest the scout ship from the state. Because they've already decided to claim jurisdiction over it. Okay, up next is Senator Finch's chapter, which to me was the most riveting. It starts with a simulation of what a hostile Kryptonian could do before the Senate Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. And that's an actual subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Armed Forces. They oversee the DOD and DARPA, and I appreciate the real-world research going into this film. That authenticity carries on into the differing viewpoints expressed during the meeting. Doesn't Superman's track record speak for itself? Why can't they simply ask Superman for his help in preparing against a similar threat? And the answer? Well, Superman is part and parcel of that threat. Asking him for help is paramount to trusting him to know Never be or become that threat. And while his good works are recognized across the board, Superman represents a threat not because they fear his bad intentions, but because they ascribe to him the possibility of human frailty. What if he can suffer mental illness? The comic reveals that Superman has been sticking with natural disasters, crime, and humanitarian missions. To be honest, I'm actually surprised to hear crime is on that list, but it continues with the idea that this Superman is more experienced than I gave him credit for. Maybe we'll save that for the General Mills comic books. Um, Superman's geopolitical ramifications are raised, and the debate is renewed. Do we trust the man with the track record? Do we hold back? Do we risk alienating the sole protector against another force? Every factor of the rubric is engaged. Either you have Superman's trust and protection, or you risk tipping your hand to a future threat. Exchange. Their decision can mean security from Superman, or the possibility of Superman refusing to help in the future stakes. And these questions are driven by the context. This debate doesn't happen without Man of Steel, and it goes down differently after Batman v Superman. And even with all these same facts, we have two senators still with a difference in opinion. So you're sucked in. You're asking yourself what choice would you make and why? How would you plead your side of the case? That's why the very premise of Batman v Superman is extremely engaging. Anyways, Senator Finch refocuses the topic to Superman specifically, and not just Another alien attack, while making an oblique reference to Lex Luthor. He's one of their best people already at work in preparing against a future alien invasion. Senator Finch reviews Superman's impact and how little they know, and they all agree to investigate Superman further. Now, part of the reason I love this chapter is because you know that countless variations of this conversation and debate are occurring throughout the planet, in committees, in boardrooms, in classrooms, and lecture halls. Across dining room tables and on the internet and, of course, in the press. Which brings us to chapter four featuring Superman. The chapter starts with a very deliberate train rescue, showing Superman's experience, his conscientiousness, and his limitations. All of which I appreciate. And it turns out that it's part of a Talking Heads segment on a news program. The professor defends Superman while Mr. Weidman raises quintessential moral dilemmas which can't be resolved through sheer power. How long can a good man of conscience, sit back and watch, is a straw man in practice. As we've discussed before, our personal ability to do good usually isn't a question of power or resources. We've discussed this more thoroughly in episode 30, and you can go back and listen to that. It's really more of a philosophical argument than a legitimate one, but it's still thought-provoking. And in fact, Luther is reliant on the fact that power does not resolve moral dilemmas as a part of his strategy. Okay, uh, going back to the reality of Superman's power, powers, and even dialing this back to the previous chapter, consider what it means for the Pentagon to have an accurate simulation of Superman's powers, or for his limitations and calculations to be discussed publicly on a news program. What that means is that Superman's power set is known, understood, measured, and defined, perhaps to a greater degree in military simulation circles than in the general public, but we basically are not dealing with a Superman who is magical or mystical to most of the informed public. They aren't expecting to be healed by touching the hem of his cape. They don't think that he can grant wishes, or turn back time. There is an explicit understanding that he is a corporeal alien being on this planet with a fixed set of abilities, which play within some new understanding of the laws of physics or reality, and which follow those rules with scientific rigidity, rather than some arbitrary or capricious whim. And that enhances the reality of this world. It makes the storytelling more compelling and less artificial. It limits deus ex machina coming from Superman, making him relevant and modern rather than just a childlike fantasy. It's that scientific consistency which made me absolutely adore analyzing Man of Steel, and which allows it to hold up to such rigorous, in-depth examination. And knowing that that aspect is carrying forwards into Batman v Superman while still being reconciled with a masked vigilante, a magical Amazon warrior, gigantic genetic experiments, and dark cosmic entities with insectoid foot soldiers. That makes me well up with how well they're bringing this all all to life in such an authentic, real life, yet insanely true to the comics sort of way. I'm just so excited about how seriously they're taking the world building. In Man of Steel alone, consider the fact that they commissioned the creation of an alien language. Think about that for a second. And here, they're building Metropolis and Gotham to such a degree that Time Out is publishing one of their shortlist guidebooks to these two fictional destinations, which have generated enough world building material to fill over, over 120 pages. I just can't wait to soak in this world and study all that detail. The same care and respect for tradition and authenticity gets shown in our next chapter. Lex Luthor's chapter starts with a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the rebuilding of Lexcorp Tower. Lex plays to optimistic attitudes about Metropolis rebounding. He has invested heavily into Metropolis after the Black Zero event and can be credited with inspiring other corporations to do the same, most notably cord. And incidentally, if you glance at the article, note that the founder is Thomas Cord and not Theodore or Ted Cord. More on that another time. I really like this take on inspiration because it makes Lex's holdings legitimate but also realistic. We've discussed in the past how it would be impossible for the fortune of one man to rebuild Metropolis, but it wouldn't be impossible for Lex to be the catalyst for bringing others into the effort, and that allows him to claim the credit. When compared to Superman, Lex bristles, but he doesn't outright attack Superman, who is still. Clearly, a public hero to many, but not all. As the reporter says, Are you saying you're among those who don't believe that he's the hero that he appears to be? And Lex deflects the question, but nonetheless, he artfully seeds doubt. Now, later, Lex brings up saving kittens from trees, just as Bruce does, which reinforces this as something that Superman literally does in the world. Again, the question of geopolitics is raised, and the specter of North Korea raised for a second time in these comments. So it seems clear that Superman has drawn his boundaries, and Lex seems interested in seeing what would happen if Superman was forced outside those boundaries and forced to choose a side. Perhaps going so far as to create a scenario for Superman which trips up geopolitical consequences? Well, we're left with Lex studying and plotting away. And this is the first time that we'll be getting Lex as a legitimate businessman on the big screen, and the essential characterization seems spot on so far. All in all, these comics provide about 50 pages of content based on the world of Batman v Superman. We get character moments, dialogue, a Batman fight scene, a Superman rescue, and Lois taking someone down. All with a free app and a Dr. Pepper. This is a great promotion for the fans, I can hardly complain. I've yet to see any of the General Mills serials with the comics inside on the shelves of my retailers, but once those are in stock, we should have four new comics to look at, to give us even more insight into the details and the world world that's being built up in these films. I guess those are our main topics, but Zack Snyder also did two notable interviews recently, uh, both meant to promote the Doritos' crash the Super Bowl campaign, but which inevitably touched on Batman v Superman. I'm just going to run through some of the main points uh, from the Hall of Justice interview first. The film is basically done, but waiting to finalize some 3D shots. The film doesn't require watching Man of Steel. Snyder confirms again that Batman v Superman was created to be consistent with the DC universe and not as a reaction to Man of Steel critics. He says that they don't take liberties, but they're bringing the comics characters to reality. The film is focused upon Batman and Superman and it's really going to drill down to the why of them. And finally he says that the characters are bigger than any actor, director, movie or take, which is why he's happy with the diversity and the separation of TV from film. So looking back at those points, it looks like he the idea of random public test screenings. Uh, We know that the film is going to be a self-contained and complete story. It's a prequel to Justice League, which focuses on fully developing the world's finest. And I don't have much else to say. It was a pretty straightforward interview, and even the most controversial part about not changing Superman is really innocuous in context. I'm not really interested in getting into that too much. Um, Let's just quickly go over the Opie interview. Snyder was confident in the rationalizations for the fight and its outcome, and I love hearing that. And he hopes people will be respectful with the spoilers, but he knows the age that we live in. With respect to what's being shown in the marketing, Snyder is very involved in what gets shown and not. And he says, trust me, you don't know anything. You know nothing. (laughs) Um, on faithfulness to the comics, he was the one that convinced the studio to be more comic accurate with Watchmen and the honor and the pressure that he feels with the DC universe is in bringing those worlds to life, to honor the original comic book artists and creators. On competition with Marvel, he's a fan, and he considers the competition manufactured, but he acknowledges that on some level, it's a good thing, which makes the movies better and more interesting. Okay, again, on those points, not really much to say. I'm just dying to see the film at this point. And man, I am wiped. I am not going to talk about the leaked track because you do not want to hear me gush on for 10 minutes about something that I have no expertise in, but it is so packed with a sense of storytelling that I have to resist listening to it on loop to keep it fresh. And I want to talk about the Chinese market and the big get of having a simultaneous stateside release date, but I am literally too tired. So that's it. I'm calling it a shorter episode this time. I've been on the road and extremely busy. Hopefully you had a great Super Bowl weekend or Lunar New Year celebration. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough, thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm extremely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com That way, if you have a question you want answered or an insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. And eventually me when I'm less busy. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com If you like what you heard, please review the show on itunes and subscribe i'm doc your dc films justice league universe apologist signing off see you next time you're the answer son So this episode is a little shorter and more rushed because I actually scrapped the original episode that I had recorded because honestly it was rambling and all over the place and it started with a Zack Snyder filmography retrospective which was a little too heady it went on too many tangents it wasn't up to par and I just don't have the time to fix it right now Also, and Snyder would be the first one to admit this the Justice League universe is bigger than any one director including Zack Snyder So I didn't want to be too caught up in his past when there's so much going on in the present. That said, you're smart people, so I guess you can figure out a lot of the discussion topics and threads on your own that can spring from the following clip. But just to prime the pump a little, remember that Aristotle was Plato's student, and Plato appears again and again in Man of Steel and Snyder's filmography. Remember also that the Battle of Thermopylae inspired 300. And also, well, now I'm starting to recreate that rambling episode, so let's just roll that clip, which comes from the philosophy channel, The School of Life.
3: Humans have always seriously messed up their lives, but the way in which failure has been viewed has a long and fascinating history that it may help us to know about. Athens, 429 B.C. It's the premiere of a tragedy called Oedipus the King, written by the great playwright Sophocles. It's the story of an honourable, capable and highly resourceful man who nevertheless messes up his life in a catastrophic way. But the audience doesn't leave the theatre thinking of Oedipus as a loser. Greek tragedy was designed to show audiences that terrible things can and very often do happen to good people, and therefore we must remain sympathetic and kind in the face of failure. The Greeks forced this message upon themselves again and again at prestigious annual festivals. The Greeks also loved the story of the Spartan army at Thermopylae, where a small contingent of warriors held out to the last man against a vastly larger Persian force. The Spartans were utterly defeated, but their failure was seen as profoundly noble. You can lose and be good. That was the moral. Rome, 46 AD Julius Caesar celebrates yet another triumph over the enemies of Rome. The Romans worship success. They believe that success in the here and now is all that counts and that success means three things, money, fame and military glory, which creates a lot of anxiety around failure. Germany, 9 AD. The Roman general Varus kills himself after losing a battle in the Teutoburg Forest, not far from modern-day Hanover in the north of Germany. He's made some major strategic errors in deploying his troops. His suicide is an expected consequence. Failure is so humiliating and shameful that it shows one doesn't deserve to go on living. The Romans represent a society where failure is thought of as naturally accompanied by shame. When big things go wrong, you just kill yourself. There's no excuse a small hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, 30 AD. A former carpenter and itinerant preacher delivers a tender speech which has since become known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ tells his followers, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, the unsuccessful are in a way more successful than the successful in the eyes of God, because their failures erode arrogance and invite dependence on the divine. For hundreds of years, Christianity lends glamour and prestige to failure and challenges the worldly values of Rome, privileging poverty, obscurity and weakness over wealth, fame and strength. Not simply are you not meant to commit suicide when you fail, failing is a sign of being blessed. Eastern India, sometime in the 5th century BC, a wealthy young Indian prince, Siddhartha Gautama later known as the Buddha, the Enlightened One, comes to a key realization about human beings. All of us are deeply maladjusted, unhappy creatures. Worldly success, power, riches, love can mean nothing and will never satisfy us. We must learn to renounce our desires and escape from constant cycles of craving and wanting. In Buddhist eyes, true success means utter failure in the eyes of a Roman soldier or a modern American. It means living under a fruit tree, owning nothing but a loincloth, and begging from passers-by. Paris, 1799. Napoleon Bonaparte inaugurates a new social order which will begin to be known as a meritocracy. No longer will success go only to members of the old corrupt aristocracy. He wants to launch a meritocracy marked by what he terms a carrière ouverte au talent, careers open to the talented, rather than just the privilege. France acquires a new honor system based on merit, the Légion d'honneur, which is given to people of all classes who are judged not by ancestry or wealth, but by military, scientific or artistic prowess. Suddenly, success comes to seem a lot more fair and deserved, which is very advantageous in many ways. But it also means that failure starts to be recategorized as not merely accidental or morally neutral, as the Christian ideal had implied, but also, in some ways, deserved. Paris, 1863. The French government sponsors its annual Artistic Salon, where the most successful painters are exhibited and celebrated. The jury, headed by the Comte de Neuverkerkerke, the head of the Academy of Fine Arts, is that year extremely conservative and rejects two-thirds of the paintings presented, including those of Courbet, Édouard Manet, Camille Pissarro and Whistler the rejected artists and their friends are outraged and protest. The Emperor Napoleon III eventually relents and allows the rejected artists to set up their own rival exhibition. Gradually, the public and critics recognize that the officially successful artists, people like Alexandre Cabanel and Franz Winterhalter, are terrible painters and that the unsuccessful ones are in fact the true geniuses. This will be a theme throughout the history of 19th and 20th century art and society more broadly. The genius is at first rejected by a stupid, blinkered world, but eventually comes to be accepted and celebrated. This is what happens to, among others, John Keats, Vincent van Gogh, Marcel Proust, Janis Joplin and Steve Jobs. Real successes aren't successes immediately, goes the story. They might need to wait for a long time, perhaps until after they're dead. A consoling story with echoes of the Christian idea of redemption. New York, October the 5th, 1987. The right-wing economics magazine Forbes publishes its first list of the richest people on the planet. The richest man is Yohiaki Tsutsumi, who is at that point worth 20 billion dollars. The tone of the magazine is celebratory and unnuanced, reflecting an uncritical acceptance of the idea of the American dream. He who is richest finishes first. It's a small irony, therefore, that two weeks later, on October the 19th, the world's stock markets collapse, destroying wealth on an enormous scale and shaking everyone's confidence in the merit and sanity of the economic system. New York, September 2011. Following yet another global economic meltdown, a group of protesters occupy Zuccotti Park in the financial district of Manhattan. Their protest is, in a narrow sense, about the corruption and blindness of America's financial institutions. But more broadly, the protesters are arguing that a narrow elite, the 1% as they call them, have twisted our ideas of success and the good life. The so-called heroes, people like Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, who's paid around $20 million a year, are in fact the villains. Being a decent person doesn't necessarily mean making a lot of money, it means acting wisely and kindly towards others and the planet. The protesters have a good few months in which to make their case, which sounds remarkably like that made by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, before the forces of contemporary capitalism hose them down and shut them up. Slowly, the economy recovers, which also means that the battered American dream, equating nobility with financial success, becomes dominant once more. Most of us are going to endure horrific failures in some area or other of our lives. We're an extremely success-focused world and define success by some very narrow, normally financial, criteria. There's endless talk about opportunity and well-meaning efforts to make sure that everyone can have a chance. But there is a deep silence about what happens when you fail. To weaken the power of the narratives of success, we used to have religion and we used to have art. We have less of that now. The very idea that failure could be noble has entirely disappeared. We need to go back in history and fetch some ideas that could stop us from being fatally hard on ourselves when we mess up in the eyes of Forbes magazine and the American dream in general. You're the answer, son.
2: And make it a special night tonight. Help around with her coat, pull out her chair, and try not to have that argument about why Batman shouldn't be fighting Superman. <laughs>
3: Honoring friendship is the right thing to do. Mm. Unlike Batman trying to fight Superman.
1: <laughs> it's crazy. He's the man of steel.
2: You're the answer, son. Hey, Zach, you realize that Justin, that the, the huge fan that's asking you all these questions about the movie, if that movie comes out and Batman wins in that fight, he's going to be really mad at you. <laughs> but, by the way, I, I totally understand that on a, a gut level. <laughs> he might not even see oh, your next two movies that. after that. That's How How mad are you going to be at Batman wins? If
0: Batman wins, if Batman wins I'm, I mean, I'm sure he gets this all the time, but it's like I said before, you know, Batman's a guy in a in a suit and Superman's a guy from space. If Batman wins, I'm going to be pissed.
2: Are you going to be mad at Zach? Well, I mean, hey, Zach's hey, making hey, the movie. So Sweet. you're going to be mad at him? I'll be mad
0: at Zach. Well, obviously, Batman wins. <laughs> Just, how can Batman win? Because
2: we all love a good underdog. But if Batman wins, right, it has to be And Superman. then they got to go with the rematch. Right, I guess. Underdog wins, that's you just, always go for the rematch. Everyone knows that's that. Just gotta, you just got to see it. It's 100%. All right. Makes sense. I Very can't cool. wait. Well, Zach, like, oh, of course, this is the only way it could end. Yeah. <laughs> You're the answer, son.